0: Let's go ahead and open up uh, to open up to our passage this morning. We're going to be looking at Luke 18. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. This is found on page 877 in that Blue Pew Bible in front of you, if you'd like to follow along there. I'd encourage you to, to uh, open up to that, at least have the parable in front of you, because we'll refer back to it. Um, and just to give you a lay of the land here, we're in the midst of this series entitled Being the Body of Christ. And Darwin spent the first five weeks talking about Reaching Up, which was the, uh, the corporate worship uh, that is at the heart of what it means to be the body of Christ. Uh, and then the last few weeks, we've been going through the second section, which we've called Reaching In, and we're looking at our life together and what it means to be made into the image of Jesus more and more, and then we'll look... In future weeks, at reaching out. But this morning, we're in this section on reaching in. And we're going to look at that uh, from this passage. So follow along with me there. Luke 18, chapter 9, I'm sorry, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Pray with me. Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together would be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, one of my favorite terms from the last few years is the term humble brag. Some of you are going to be familiar with this, others uh, have just heard it for the first time. Humble brag, okay? Uh, this was created by a comedian named Harris Whittles, who's a Parks and Rec writer. It started as a Twitter account that was just a humblebrag Twitter account, and then this guy did so well that he ended up writing a book that was entitled Humblebrag, The Art of False Modesty. So what is a humblebrag? Okay, basic definition, it is bragging or boasting that's cloaked in the language of humility. So basically what you're doing is subtly telling everyone how awesome you are in 140 characters or less without actually having to tell them how awesome, in fact, you are. Um, here are some uh, some samples for you. Here's one from a comedian. Being famous and having a fender bender is weird. You want to be upset, but the other driver is just thrilled and giddy that it's you. Here's another one, and this is on some honest talent. Wrote in my journal about the honesty of a broken heart. My words moved me. <laughs> Strange feeling. Um, as you can imagine, workouts and exercise are prime material for humble bragging. Here's one. Can anyone recommend a camelback for running? Did 9.7 miles on Monday, and that was the limit of my running without, without a water bottle. And as with most things, Christians have their own version of this as well. And the key is to include the words humbled or blessed or grateful. Okay, here are some first band practice went well, humbled by the Lord, being able to take mediocre musicians and turn them into worship leaders. Hashtag grace. That wasn't from Jacob either, just so you know. And then one last one here. This is really good. I'll leave the name of this church out. Almost 24,000 people showed up to our service today. We're a quarter of the way to (laughs) 100,000. So I laugh at these, right? As well we should. Until I think back to my RUF ministry updates, when I would go to supporters and to supporting churches and give an account for what was happening with RUF at Purdue. And then I realized... I'm humble bragging. I'm doing the exact same thing. And here's how it works. You talk about God's work, which is legitimate, but then you conveniently ensure that people realize how great I am, how I'm doing everything well, and I'm just so humbled that God is using me the way He is. Humble brag, okay? So what are we doing really in the midst of our humble bragging? Here's what it is this is what we're going to talk about this morning. brags, whether Christian or not, they come in all different forms, are attempts to put forward an image that we have it all together. And that's something that every single person in this room is familiar with and has in common. They are ways to help people see, I've got it all together. Ways to help people know that I'm in shape, that my kids are perfect, that I either have the best husband ever or I am the best husband ever. You can help people see that you're successful, that you're the funniest, that you have the cleanest, most well-designed house, and on and on and on. And what happens is that life becomes this nonstop performance, and you and I become impostors. That's what happens as we continue down this path. And what we need to recognize this morning is that this also wreaks havoc on our relationships. It wreaks havoc on them, and that's why we're talking about it in the midst of this series. What Jesus says in this passage is that the real question for you and for me this morning is where is your trust? Where are you looking for your righteousness? Is it in the image that you're putting forward and how people perceive you? That is, is it in yourself or is it in Jesus? Look back at verse 9. This is the setting of the parable. He says that he's telling this parable to some who trust in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. What I also want us to see this morning is that what Jesus does is invite us to a place where you can actually lay aside that exhausting and futile attempt to put forward this image. And you can actually go to Jesus and acknowledge your need of mercy. Acknowledge that you don't, in fact, have it all together. Acknowledge that the whole and full spectrum of your life is not totally out there on Facebook and that there are, in fact, things that are broken and wrong and sinful about you. He invites you to that place, and He invites us to experience that freedom of putting our trust in Jesus rather than ourselves, and then to experience the glory of the depth of the relationships that can come from that. So what does it mean to be the body of Christ? question we're asking in this series. This morning, out of this passage, being the body of Christ means trusting in Jesus rather than in ourselves. It means trusting in Jesus rather than in ourselves. A couple points. The first is this. Jesus first calls us away from trust in self. Obviously, it's not hard to see who is meant to depict this in the parable, right? This Pharisee reeks of self-righteousness in a way that would have been really, really awkward to us, right? Um, What I want to point out from the beginning is that we need to be careful here, Because it's very, very easy as those who are familiar with the Bible and with the New Testament in particular to look at this Pharisee and go, what an idiot, right? Like, you're going to do that? Pray this publicly this way? What we need to know is that if you and I had been there, we would have had the utmost respect for Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of the day. They were the most moral. They were the most devout. They were the ones who were closest to God. That's how we would have viewed them. Not in sort of a scoffing, dismissive sort of way. And so you sort of need to think of like a Billy Graham or a Mother Teresa. Somebody who is sort of the epitome of holiness. But notice what Jesus does here. He shows us what it looks like to trust in self through this Pharisee. So what does it look like? It first looks like that you believe you have no need of God. So here's the setting. These two are walking up to the temple, and they're going to pray, and they're about to do this in a very public setting. There are other people all around here. And notice what he does. Verse 12. The Pharisee begins by pretty much praying his resume, right? He approaches God by listing his accomplishments. This is what I've done. And he, he goes above and beyond even the expectations of the law. He says he fasts twice a week. The only day on which fasting was required in the whole year was on the Day of Atonement. He's doing this twice a week. And it's probably the case that he views himself as fasting for the whole of Israel. He says he tithes on everything. Again, only, he was only required to actually tithe on his earnings. But he's going a step above and saying, I tithe on everything, even stuff that's been given to me that's already been tithed on once. I'm tithing on that as well. Bottom line, he's relating to God based on his accomplishments. He's looking to himself. He's trusting in himself. It's veiled and cloaked as thanking God for it, when in fact he's showing he has no need of God. His trust is in himself, and he's boasting before God. Something else we need to keep in mind here. If we were to pull this Pharisee aside and say, hey, uh, this is kind of awkward what you're doing right here. Um, are, are you self-righteous? Are, are, you, are you trusting in yourself here? It kind of sounds like it. What do you think the Pharisee might say? Of course not. No, no, no. I, I completely am trusting God. He's the one who's enabling me to do these things. What's the point? The point is that self-righteousness and self-trust is deceptive. And it's horribly, horribly difficult to recognize in yourself. Here's what Eugene Peterson says about it. He he likens self-righteousness to bad breath. Everyone else knows you have it except you, right? You're the only one who can't smell your bad breath. That's how self-righteousness operates. It's running just beneath the surface all the time. And by definition, because you're boasting in yourself... You're unable to admit the weakness that self-righteousness is. By definition, you can't do it. So you're blind to your own self-righteousness. So here's here's what we need to hear this morning about self-righteousness. If we hear this parable and think, you know, this is really familiar to me. I know about self-righteousness. I don't really need to hear this. Then it's quite possible that you in particular, need to hear this this morning, that you do need to examine the place where your trust is found right now. Is it in Jesus, or is it in yourself? Because this is so difficult to recognize, I want to throw out a few different forms that this could take for us, because I think uh, I don 't think anybody in here is, is coming up and praying in such a public and ridiculous way like this. Doesn't mean we're not trusting in ourselves. Here are some ways it might take, the shape, uh, take shape in your life. It may be that, that your trust in yourself and your self righteousness looks like an unstoppable, compulsive busyness. Why busyness? Because your entire life is a performance and you can't stop. Because if you stop, then you might lose. Your performance will be undone. And so you continue, continue. Continue to go. It's an unstoppable busyness. It may be that your trust in yourself looks like being riddled with anxiety over what people think about you. Where the pain of the deep insecurity that you feel every time you interact with somebody is almost palpable. You may actually be trusting in yourself. You're thinking, I have to keep up appearances. My interaction with this person is everything. It may be that your trust in self looks like an inability to say no for the very same reasons. This person might not think I can do all these things, so I have to continue to take on these tasks and say yes. Or I can't turn down an invitation or an offer from somebody because they might be upset with me. And what I need more than anything else is for this person to love me because I'm trusting in myself. There's a reason, actually, that I'm familiar with these things and know what this looks like. Um, This is me. Uh, One year ago, I started seeing a counselor for my anxiety. And in the midst of my time uh, with this counselor in Indiana, uh, I came to see that this anxiety that I struggle and have struggled with so deeply is really a desire to control my surroundings in order to make me look great. Because I'm trusting in myself. I tell you that because I didn't go to this counselor saying, I'm self-righteous and I think I need to talk about this. It was not on my radar as something that I was really dealing with. But that's exactly where my struggle lies. Is that it for you as well? Is your anxiety really a symptom of your trust in self? Is that why you can't say no? Is that why you're compulsively busy? Why is this so dangerous? It's dangerous because it puts you and me in the position of potentially missing Jesus. Over and over again in the Bible, the problem with the Pharisees is that they miss Jesus. They don't recognize Him to be Messiah. They have no need of Him. In fact, He's a threat to their religiosity and their obedience and all that they're doing and this esteem that they feel from other people so deeply. They have no need of Him. And for you and me, when we start down this path of self-righteousness and self-trust, we are in danger of doing the exact same thing. Missing Jesus. Not overtly, but subtly and over time, we miss Jesus. And we continue to take a path that leads us away from Him. If that's the case, then why do we do this? Because what I think is actually happening underneath our pride, underneath our self-righteousness, underneath our self-exaltation is really an attempt at self-protection. What we fear more than anything else is being hurt. And so what we do is try to silent that incessant voice of our guilt and our shame and the way in which other people have hurt us by putting up this front of having everything together. Here's how this works. We think to ourselves, if I just do everything perfectly, then you can't reject or hurt me. If I behave well enough, if I'm moral enough, if I'm funny enough, whatever, then I can silence that voice of shame that won't stop. If I can just control the image that I'm putting forth and control the way you look at me, then I'll be okay. That's why self-righteousness, as absurd as it sounds, is so appealing to us and why we still continue to do it. And this spills over, all over, into our relationships with one another as well. And you see that in the passage. Jesus points out to us that this Pharisee, he says, treats others with contempt. Look at verse 11. It says he's standing off by himself. So it could be a couple things happening here. It could be that he's holding this prominent position and he's saying like, hey, get away from me so I can be seen. Kind of like the defensive end who has this great sack on the quarterback and runs 20 yards in the other direction. Just so you know that he's the one who did it. Look at me. It could be Instead, that he actually wants to avoid associating with this tax collector. Because the issue here is that this tax collector, because of his sinfulness and the way that he would have been classified in the Jewish system, is that he would have been unclean. That is, the Pharisee could have been unclean if he would have just touched this tax collector. Stay away from me, you're unclean. He's standing off by himself. And it results in a disdain for this person. He treats them with contempt. And then again in verse 11, the Pharisee goes on to thank God that he is not like the others. And he throws in this statement, even like this tax collector. The tax collector is standing here. This is a public prayer. In front of everybody, he's despising this man. Thank you that I'm not him. What self-righteousness does is that it ends up with us despising others and it is toxic for our relationships, it's, it prevents relationships from the start. Why is this the case? Because if you are trusting in yourself, then everyone around you becomes a threat to you. Because it could be the case that this person might actually be better than you. And every person around you in all of your relationships becomes a competitor. This is the sort of realm that self-righteous people live in. It's one of comparison and competition, always. Constantly comparing, constantly trying to prove yourself, because all you have is your resume. C.S. Lewis says this in his unbelievable chapter on pride and mere Christianity. I would commend that to you again. It's good to go back to over and over again. Here's what he says about pride. He says, pride is essentially competitive It's competitive by its very nature. While the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. So what happens in our relationships is that we're either, on the one hand, disdainful towards others because they're not meeting the expectations and standards that we are, so we look down on them, just like this Pharisee. Or, on the other hand, you become envious towards other people and eaten up with it inside because they are playing the game better than you are. They are more successful. They are more attractive. Their kids are more well-behaved. And you grow envious and disdainful of them in that way. The result is that real relationships among self-righteous people are impossible. Everyone is always wearing a mask. Everyone is always pretending that it's okay. I'm okay. You're okay. Everybody's fine. Uh, One of the ways I felt this personally, uh, again, was in my time at Purdue. I I actually missed out on, I've thought about this a lot lately, I, I missed out on a lot of really, what could have been really great friendships and relationships with other ministers at Purdue. Why? Because I was so prideful. I viewed them as competitors. I wanted RUF to be bigger and better than everything else there. I was deeply insecure around them as well. And the result is that I never really made any good friends with these other brothers and sisters that were doing the exact same thing that I was there. Self-righteousness ruins relationships. And what makes this harder, Darwin mentioned this earlier, is that it's so easy to look around and think that nobody else is struggling like you are. We live in this perpetual ignorance of how those around us are struggling. I mean, look at their marriage. They don't fight, do they? I've never seen their kids talk up in church. I've never seen that person do anything but smile. There's no way she is lonely like I am lonely. There's actually an article about this in CNN that was called uh, The Importance of Belonging. And there was this study done on this topic. Here's a quote from it. Many of us are having these same difficulties, but no one is showing it. And so we can feel isolated and depressed. This was a standard bias that was at work in almost all people. This assumption that everybody else is fine. Is that how you feel this morning? That the person next to you isn't struggling? It's probably not true. What I want you to see, though, is that Jesus gives us Jesus gives us a picture of what actually comes about when we trust in him. He gives us, uh, he calls us here to look away from ourselves and to flee into his arms. And this is what is represented by this tax collector. Secondly, Jesus calls us to trust in him. But before we talk some about this, I want to help us understand who these tax collectors actually were. Okay, Because, again, it's easy to look at him as sort of the hero in this, which he comes out looking that way in the end, without understanding the original context here. The way tax collectors operated is that they would bid for and purchase the rights to tax a particular area. Corruption, maybe, right? You're purchasing the opportunity to tax these people and to take some off the top. Even worse than that, these, these tax collectors were working for the Romans, so they were viewed as traitors as well. That was the problem for, these, uh, for the, these tax collectors. And so they were notorious for their dishonesty. Here's what one commentator says about them. They were actually classified with murderers and robbers, people to whom one does not have to tell the truth. So you need to think of one who is maybe the most despised in our society, The one who seems beyond redemption. And I was thinking some about this. I think it actually could mean something like a terrorist to us. You need to feel the scandal then of what Jesus is saying. Imagine this parable being told where Jesus says that a terrorist goes back to his house justified while Mother Teresa stands condemned. That's how we're to hear this. It would be scandalous to us. And Jesus uses him as this positive example. He is the one who's declared righteous while Mother Teresa goes down condemned. What has he done in order to be declared righteous? What does trust in Jesus look like? Well, it looks like first this recognition of our need of God's atoning mercy. See this in a few ways, all in verse 13. It says he stands far off. He recognizes himself to be unclean. It says he won't even lift his eyes to pray. Praying with lifted eyes was something that was common. Jesus did this. But the, the, the tax collector won't even do that. He won't lift his eyes to heaven. And then this most vivid picture here, he's repeatedly beating his breast and crying out for mercy. Mercy. And that verb is actually in the imperfect tense, which is meant to convey this, this act of being ongoing. Continues to beat his breast. Now, that's already a vivid picture, but it's even more vivid when we understand the cultural context of this as well. There's a commentator who moved to the Middle East and lived there for 20 years in order to understand Middle Eastern culture. And one of the things he says is that women are the only ones who would ever, ever, beat their chests in public. And the only time that would have happened is at a funeral. And this man says that in his 20 years of living in the Middle East, he has only one time heard of a man beating his breast in this way. This is extreme sorrow and anguish over his sin. So he cries out for mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he recognizes in this cry for mercy that there's no way he can make up for what he's done. He can't do anything about it. There's actually provision in Leviticus 6 for somebody who has swindled somebody else to pay back that which he had stolen. But you were to pay all this back plus an additional fifth of what you had stolen. This is utterly impossible for this tax collector to do. It's impossible for him. He's completely hopeless in the midst of this. What is he doing? He is coming out of hiding and acknowledging his need for the grace and mercy that only God can provide. And that is exactly what we are called to as well. One of the most frightening, most daunting things, if you're not a Christian here, to think about coming to Jesus is that you have to acknowledge your own inadequacy. You have to lay aside this image that you have been perfecting nonstop for the whole of your life and say, It is not working. I have need for mercy and for grace. Jesus invites us to come out of hiding and, like this tax collector, acknowledge it before God. But he also recognizes on the same front his need for atonement. That word for mercy used in verse 13 has these atonement sort of overtones to it. And the entire setting is happening here in the temple. So he's in effect saying, I need an atoning sacrifice for my sin. I can't do this myself. I need to be shown mercy. And what it does for us then is that it points us to the ultimate atoning sacrifice. This is the ultimate reason why you can acknowledge your sin before God and before other people. It is the cross of Jesus. It is the cross of Jesus alone. The reason that you can come out of hiding is that Jesus has dealt with your sin and your guilt and your shame on the cross. And in Him, you are declared righteous. Your sin has been counted to him. His righteousness now is spoken over you because of his death and resurrection on your behalf. That is the only thing that can free you to acknowledge our need. So as we think about practically what does this mean, I think it means we have got to fix our eyes on the cross in the midst of our struggle with self-righteousness. Because what that does is on the one hand, it humbles you. You look at the cross and you have to say, this is what my sin did. It was my sin that held Him there. This is how bad things are. But at the same time, it's overwhelmingly beautiful because you can point to that very same cross and say, and at the same time, this is how much God loves me. That He would do this. He would send His Son onto this cross to die for me. This is what He has done for us. So you can let go of these attempts at putting forward this image of perfection because Jesus has been perfect for you. And the result, verse 14, this man, this tax collector, this terrorist, went down to his house justified. Why? Not because he had it all together, Right? Not because he was moral, not because he was upstanding, but because he cried out for mercy and knew he had no hope outside of the grace of God for him that was going to come through this sacrificial system that points ultimately to Jesus. And what I want you to think about is the freedom that this tax collector would have been feeling. The way in which this burden had been lifted off of him. The way that he was able to step off this exhausting feeling of trying to prove himself and live life apart from acknowledging this need for mercy. This is the freedom that is offered to you and me. This freedom to lay aside that exhausting path of trying to have it all together and instead be embraced by the love of Jesus as you acknowledge your need of his work for you. And the glorious thing is that just as our self-righteousness spills over into our relationships, so this acknowledgement of our need and mercy also spills over into our relationships as well. And it results then in us treating others with grace and with mercy. Here's how this works. When you begin trusting in Jesus for your righteousness rather than in yourself, it transforms everything. Because when you've grasped that you are fully and completely and finally accepted before God because of what Jesus has done for you, you can actually begin loving people rather than disdaining or competing with people. People move from this category of competitors into objects that Jesus has loved and died for and now people that you can love as well. It transforms our relationship so you can move beyond this fear and this self-protection that we're putting forward and open ourselves up to love other people. Because my life is not staked in what you think of me anymore. My life and worth and value comes from Jesus. What does this say then to our church as a whole? As we continue to move in this direction, I just want you to think about how incredible our life together could continue to grow and to be if we became a community that was actually open and honest about the fact that we are all struggling. Can you imagine the freedom of that? I think it was sometimes one of the, the, the times that we feel like we have to put forward an image more than any other time in the week might be between 10 and eleven fifteen on a Sunday morning. This parable opens up the possibility of us becoming a community that are open and honest with the ways in which we are so desperately in need of Jesus' grace and mercy. Think about what that might be for somebody coming into our church as well who is not yet a Christian. How refreshing that would be. This is what Jesus offers to us in this parable. quote from Keller that summarizes it all. The gospel humbles us without deflating us. We're humbled, but at the same time, we recognize that Jesus loves us so deeply that He would die for us. But it also exalts us without inflating us. Raises us up as the sons and daughters of the living God for whom Jesus has given His life. But at the same time, you acknowledge you're not here because you've done that yourself. You've done that because of the loving kindness of God our Father and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus invites you this morning to turn away from the busyness, from the anxiety, from the attempts to put on this mask and put forward this image of perfection and to instead acknowledge your need of mercy and grace. And He promises, you can look to the cross as a certainty of this, he promises to meet that need, to cover your shame, to forgive you for your guilt, and actually enable us to move into real relationships with one another. This is what Jesus offers in this parable. Let me pray for us to that end. Our Father, we thank You for the glory that you have revealed in this self-giving, self-sacrificial love on the cross. We thank you that it is this love that comes to us in the midst of our self-trust, our self-righteousness, our attempts to prove our worth and put forward an image of perfection, and that you break through all of those things in order to show us our true need of you and even more gloriously to meet that need. Father, move us in this direction, help us to rest in this and enable us to to open ourselves to genuine relationships with one another because we know that we are united to your son Jesus and he is the one in whom we have our identity and worth and value. Do that, we pray, for your glory and our good. Amen.